Welcome back to the Genesis of Conception. I am your hostess, Bex David, and this is the space between the picket lines. This is a space where we talk about all things pro-life, but we come at it from the basis of real science and provable data. In the last episode, we discussed cases of rape and incest and why choosing life for the pre-born is still moral and correct in cases like that. This week, we're going to look at the reality of children who are being born alive and left to die. Additionally, we're going to take a look at maternal mortality rates and the inherent dangers of the abortion process for the moms who undergo it. We're going to examine what each element entails. We're going to look at eyewitness and unearthed unearthed testimonies, and we're going to examine relevant laws regarding those matters. Now, to begin, let's make one thing very clear. When I say born alive and left to die, I'm not speaking in hyperbole. I'm also not speaking about some far-fetched, extremely rare, way out of left field concept. Believe me, I wish that I were. I wish that this didn't exist because it is infanticide. But we live in a society that is fighting to normalize it. So I want to make you aware of what that looks like. Additionally, I am forced to copy the language used by the pro-choice crowd, which is unsafe, quote-unquote, abortions, before Roe versus Wade, and safe, quote-unquote, abortions done by an abortion provider post-Roe versus Wade. My issue here is that there is no such thing as a safe abortion, period. Abortions always carry high risks to the mother, whether or not they are successful at ending the life of the child. And don't worry, I'll get into that bit more later on. Now, those notes being made, on to what the process entails. If a child is born alive and left to die, it is always the result of a botched abortion. Remember, every successful abortion ends the life of the child within the mother's womb. That is the entire purpose of an abortion. The successful extermination of the preborn child by pill, dismemberment, poison, or the child's spine being severed and their brain being sucked out of their skull. I know all that sounds intense, and for more information on it, I actually have prior episodes which you can go watch after this. Now, sometimes the abortionist messes up. In those cases, the child is born alive. At this point, we are not talking about, you know, some stage of child in the womb where you can have questions about whether or not you're looking at an actual human being. Whenever a child is born alive during an abortion, that is now a living human being that is on that medical table that these people who are doing the abortion can look at and say that is a human being. Now, instead of doing everything possible to help that infant, the child is either left somewhere to die or the abortionist or possibly a nurse must physically end the child's life. It sounds heinous. Because it is. In any other context, if a medical professional had the capability to save a person's life and did not do so, they would rightfully be found guilty of either manslaughter or murder. Now, I'm going to detail various accounts given by abortionists and slash or the nurses who worked by their sides. And these accounts talk about the process and the methodology of ensuring the child's death after a botched abortion. 
Our first testimonial comes straight out of Houston, Texas, which is a huge shame because I'm a Texan and we are very pro-life overwhelmingly. Now, in this case, nurses who worked under Houston abortionist Douglas Carpen, that's K-A-R-P-E-N, testified that he had killed born-alive babies by several gruesome methods, including twisting off their heads. You did hear that correctly. Now, the insane thing is that even though he's currently actively under investigation by both state and local officials, he is still allowed to keep his two facilities open. That is insanity. Example two comes from the Bronx in New York, where a staffer told Live Action's investigator that an infant born alive is placed in a jar with a solution that prevents the baby from breathing, which causes asphyxiation. That is purple, sorry, that is purposeful asphyxiation of a living human being after that child has been placed inside of a jar. Example three is from Washington, D.C., where abortionist Caesar Santanangelo described severing the baby's umbilical cord at delivery to simultaneously cut off the child's oxygen and effectively strangle the child. He also made sure to emphasize that his staff would not intervene to save the life of a child born alive. Now, this one actually hits me extra hard because I was born with my umbilical cord wrapped around my neck, and my dad and my mom have both told me the stories of the medical team rushing to make sure that I was okay. And I think on what happened to this child and countless others like that child, if I had been born accidentally during the process of an abortion to parents who didn't want me, that child could have easily been me. Example four comes from an abortion nurse who actually witnessed something so sickening that she quit that day and became pro-life. Now, the story is rather long and twisty-windy, but the short version is that the abortionist botched the process, the child was born fully formed and alive, the child was given to the nurse with strict orders to put the child in a separate room behind closed doors until death came. The nurse then called around for help, but no hospitals nearby would take the infant due to the excuse of non-viability. And then the nurse was forced to just listen to the child scream and cry throughout the night until he or she died. Now, pause for a second and imagine being so callous that you can hear an infant screaming for life and you can do nothing. What kind of barbarism is that? Side note, in this scenario and in many others like it, the presumption of non-viable actually stemmed from the fact that the abortionist wrote that the patient was far earlier on in the pregnancy than she actually was. Um, in the modern world, as to the newest data that we have, the, er the, the, the earliest on in a pregnancy that a child has survived outside of the womb with help is 21 weeks. I did another episode featuring that exact information and the story behind it. In this case, the female was 30 weeks along, but 15 weeks was written on the paperwork. So that's why the other hospitals thought that the child was not viable and therefore why they refused to step in. Finally, example five. This one's actually out of Poland, so this is not just an American issue. There was a mom. She had prenatal testing done. She discovered that her child had autism. 
Then she decided she didn't want to raise a kid with autism. So she ended up with a botched 24-week abortion, and the child was set aside to scream and cry until he or she died. So in this case, being autistic was this child's death sentence. Now, wild side note here, and this is true. You can find this out if you go to the CDC and you look it up. Prenatal testing saw a huge spike in receiving a diagnosis of autism only after aborted fetal tissue started being used in the MMR vaccine back in the early 1980s. So what that means is that scientists are literally causing this issue and then the penalty of death is being assigned to innocent children by selfish parents because of it. Talk about a messed up cycle. Now, there are countless other stories, but I'm just going to give you some rapid-fire ones from LifeNews.com. All of these are testimonials from nurses who actively participated in or watched the slaughter. Number one, an infant who had his or her mouth covered so that the cries would not be heard and then had a poison-filled syringe placed directly into his or her heart to induce death. This is after the child's been born. Number two, an infant who is placed in an empty box, naked, in a stainless steel tub, cold, without any care, until he or she died. Now, what makes this one extra tragic is that the mom actually heard her child crying and begged to be given the child, but the abortionist said no. And the reason that the abortionist said no was because the child's brain tissue had already been designated for research. I kid you not. Number three, an infant who had his or her trachea crushed immediately post-delivery. That means that either the abortionist or the nurse had to physically wrap their hand around an infant's neck and squeeze until the child's airway was crushed to death. Four, a baby who survived a suction abortion. Now, suction abortions rip off the limbs of the child, but this baby somehow survived that and then was given zero care, and zero painkillers and was set aside in a bowl to struggle for half of an hour before succumbing to death. Now, imagine imagine we're not talking about infants and we're not talking about abortions here for just two seconds. What would you say if someone got their arm like ripped off by a piece of machinery and they went into a hospital and were crying and screaming for help? And then instead of the doctors and nurses, you know, giving them medical aid, they just left them in a room until the until the person bled to death. That is exactly what's happening here. But instead of it happening to, you know, uh, a 20-year-old or something, it's happening to an infant. That is what I'm talking about. Now, aside from all that, live action actually went undercover in abortion facilities across the United States, and they heard variations on the same theme, which they recorded and they put together in a documentary titled Inhuman Late-Term Abortions. It is a gruesome watch. It's also pivotal to understanding the way that the abortion industry sees and treats the most helpless humans among our population. Now that we've detailed how these helpless infants are purposefully exterminated, we're going to look at how the mother's life hangs in the balance. Now, as I said earlier, the concept of a safe abortion is a misnomer. Abortions have always been a very real threat to the life of the mother whether completed by coat hanger method or by black market abortionist or by illegal, by illegal, as in the law is okay with it, abortion. Now, proof is required for a statement of that magnitude, so I present multiple true 
verifiable, Googleable accounts to you. Now, aside from the ones I'm about to tell you, I'll have a fantastic book recommendation at the end with more. Our first victim, her name is Keisha Atkins. Her story was reported by live action after they unearthed it. She was a healthy young woman with no prior medical history. At 24 weeks gestation, she checked into Southwestern Women's Options. It's an abortion clinic, and every she did so every Tuesday, or every, sorry, she did so every day from Tuesday, January the 31st until February the 3rd of 2017. It was a multi-day abortion procedure. Now things went wrong, and she ended up at the University of New Mexico Hospital for emergency care, which is where she ended up dying. Now, the cause of death, it's a very, it's a, it's a long medical term, so I'm going to tell you the term, and then I'm going to explain what it means. It was a pulmonary thromboembolism. The short version of that is that she died of a blood clot in her lung. Now, despite her death being very clearly linked to the botched late-term abortion, it was still ruled as a natural death by the Office of the Medical Investigator, which was located at the UNM School of Medicine. Then we get to our second victim. She was 26 years old. Her name was Tia Parks. Now, her story was unearthed and told by Operation Rescue in conjunction with live action. She went to an abortion facility in Cleveland, Ohio. It was called preterm. She was having a first trimester abortion procedure. Now, this type of procedure is usually described by advocates as both safe and routine. And I know this because I've heard countless uh, pro-choicers whenever I was talking to them say the exact same thing. Now, in Tia's case, the abortionist did not do any sort of proper checkup on either her personal medical history or how her twins were doing. Yeah, because she was pregnant with twins, not just one child. So due to this total lack of proper preparation, her heart issue was missed, as was the fact that she had something called a heterotopic pregnancy. That means that one of her twins was in her womb and the other was in her fallopian tube. So she underwent something called an aspiration abortion, and that's where they use a very powerful vacuum to suck out the child piece by piece. The next day, she was rushed to the hospital in intense pain, where the doctors discovered that the procedure, the abortion procedure, had ruptured her left tube and caused hemorrhaging. Now, since the abortionist did not catch it when it happened, the hospital could not save her life. According to Operation Rescue's president, quote, it was reckless for preterm to conduct Parks' abortion in their outpatient clinic, especially since they are so prone to inflicting life-threatening injuries on women during abortions. We have documented over two dozen medical emergencies there, and we know that that is just a fraction of the women who have been hospitalized after abortions at that facility. Ms. Parks had several health issues that made her a high-risk patient who should have been referred for proper medical care in a hospital setting where her tubal pregnancy may have been detected. That may have spared her life and the life of her babies in the womb, unquote. Now, a horrific side note regarding that particular clinic is that there are many documented atrocities from just that place alone. There is a 2018 patient who was kicked out onto the street while in active hemorrhage. She was bleeding through her clothes and she was forced to call 911 by herself. And the reason that they kicked her out was that they just wanted to go home. That's insane. 
There's also the 2019 patient who hemorrhaged during a second trimester abortion. And there was also the death of Lakeisha Wilson back in 2014. It was also a hemorrhage and it led to brain damage and then cardiac arrest. So they have a history of doing this at that clinic. And they're not the only ones with that issue. Now, botched abortions, which killed a mom, are not just limited to the USA. One true story out of the UK, Compliments of Right to Life UK, tells the story of a mom of five. Her name was Sarah Louise Dunn. She died at Blackpool Victoria Hospital on the 11th of April, 2020. So this was two years ago. She died almost four weeks after having the abortion. Now, she originally fell ill post-procedure. Then she visited her general practitioner for help multiple times. And then she finally ended up at Victoria Hospital's A&E department. She was there given a diagnosis of sepsis, which is basically a very deadly infection of the blood. If you do not catch it early on, you are almost guaranteed to die. And I know because I've faced down sepsis. I was I was the one who lived when it made no logical sense because God is good. So she gets it. And then she dies shortly thereafter. Her death left her five not aborted children behind motherless. Now, in regards to the avoidability factor here, a spokesperson for Right to Life UK, her name is Catherine Robinson, she said, quote, it seems likely that if Ms. Dunn had received medical attention as soon as she reported her symptoms, she would have had a much higher chance of survival, given that sepsis is mostly treatable if it is identified and treated quickly. I can back that up as a survivor. Now, all of these modern day stories, because these have all happened in recent memory, they're tragic, but lies and deceit, which led to them, go much further back. Keep in mind, the big argument for legalization of abortion across America was actually due to the notion that thousands of women were dying in coat hanger and back alley abortions. I've heard that so, so, so many times. And the concept was that Roe versus Wade was the only way to save those women's lives. Now, most people are completely unaware of the origins of that narrative. So let me take you down the rabbit hole. First, it wasn't thousands of women. That was actually a lie which originated with Planned Parenthood abortionist Dr. Nathanson. Now, coincidentally, he actually quit the abortion industry and he became staunchly pro-life later in life. But we're going to have more on that a bit for now. His personal testimony is that he pulled that number, those thousands of women are dying every year, out of thin air, and he just repeated it until the media got a hold of it and religiously regurgitated it. LifeSite.com actually has all the details about that debacle. The actual number of women dying was far lower. But even if that part were true, there's still the ginormous issue of what actually killed the women who died. It wasn't coat hanger abortions, and it was not back alley abortions. The real truth is that the vast majority of illegal abortions were actually performed by black market abortionists, a.k.a. medical professionals with practitioner buildings and real tools of the trade. The only difference between them and the modern buildings that women can go to is that it is now legal, so the abortion providers do not have to work in the shadows. In fact, directly from Mary S. Calderon. She was the medical director of Planned Parenthood Federation of America uh, back in 1959. She said this on October the 19th of 1959. Quote, in 1955, it was exhaustively contemplated by 43 men and women from the various disciplines of obstetrics, psychiatry, 
public health, sociology, forensic medicine, law, and demography. The conference estimated that 90%, of all illegal abortions are presently being done by physicians, unquote. She actually went on to claim that the death rates were, and these are her words, surprisingly low, but not non-existent. Now, I want you to note the phraseology here of surprisingly low. Surprisingly low. The people performing these abortions expected more deaths. They expected more people to die, more women to die than actually occurred. And they still lied to the public and went right on ahead with it. Now, as further evidence, past Planned Parenthood president Alan Guttmacher made it clear that a majority of those who committed the illegal abortions, which killed, according to the Planned Parenthood people, thousands of women, were none other than trained physicians. This was all documented in a 1967 Harvard Crimson article, which titled them Knights in White Armor, for even being willing to do these procedures in the first place. So according to them, thousands of women are dying in these abortions, but they're the ones who are willingly doing them, and they're being called Knights in White Armor in the process. As I said, the deception and the false advertising ran deep then, just as it does now. Now, linking the past to the present, Live Action actually monitored a 2019 saga, or saga, I should say, of 100, 100 separate women who had to be rushed to the emergency room following botched abortions. It got so bad that Operation Rescue actually produced a video providing evidence of all of it because the stories kept being hidden by the mainstream news. Now, there is far too much specific data provided in that video for me to just tell you all of it here. So instead, I'm going to recommend that you go check it out after this. Again, it's by Operation Rescue. You can find it on YouTube, and it is literally titled 100 Women Hospitalized by Botched Abortions in 2019. So the moral of the story is that the concept of a quote-unquote safe abortion is and always has been a lie. Botched abortions, which kill the mother as well as the child, they happen frequently, they happen in abortion facilities, they happen during each trimester, they are not just limited to the United States, and they are certainly not limited to only before Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. And even if they were limited to back then, the abortion providers would still be irrefutably at fault based on their own testimony. So even if the pro-choice crowd were right, they're still wrong. Now, really quick, there's a side note that I need to address on this topic, Doctor, or on this portion of the topic, I should say. Dr. Nathanson is a brilliant example of realizing that you're doing something morally reprehensible and having the strength to walk away and do what is right. In fact, to quote Abby Johnson, you might recognize her name because she was a prior Planned Parenthood director turned pro-life titan. I've talked about her before on this show. Um, to quote her, he paved the way for conversion stories in this movement. He made it acceptable to go from pro-choice to pro-life. The concept being it is never too late and you are never too far gone. God's grace and mercy are good like that. And now, back to the original storyline of moms dying during botched abortions. Even if you are a person who does not care that your child is being executed with extreme prejudice, you should, 
at the very least, have the self-preservation instincts to steer clear of the whole endeavor because you could very easily be the next victim. Now, real quick, because this is important and it's too important to gloss over and minimize. Let's look at a recap of what we've spoken about so far. First, when a botched abortion results in a living baby outside of the womb, there are a good deal of abortionists who have zero issue murdering them in cold blood or just leaving them to die by neglect. Additionally, there is no such thing as a quote-unquote safe abortion either before Roe v. Wade or after it. And finally, the abortion industry knows all of that and they do everything in their power to bury it so that the general public is none the wiser regarding, you know, the dangers and the tragedies of this particular holocaust, the abortion holocaust. Now, before you get up in arms about my use of the term holocaust in regards to abortion, I did a whole separate episode about why I call it that. It's the one before this. So this is number 18. That was number 17. I highly recommend that you go listen to it if you have an issue with me using that terminology. But trust me, it does apply. And it's crazy because whenever I was doing the research for this episode, finding the data was so, so difficult because they are exceptionally good at burying it because they know that what they are doing is wrong and it is treacherous and it is morally reprehensible and they just do not care because the money speaks louder. Now the story, I wish that was all there was to it. I really do. But the story is not over yet because in the modern day, there are groups fighting to destigmatize and even legalize the infanticide of children who are born alive. Because keep in mind, right now, the problem is not necessarily, I mean, there are multiple problems, of course, but the issue is they have to hide these stories because it's not okay to just murder a baby, obviously. Like, if the parents did that, the parents would get in trouble. It's, it's, there have been a couple stories about that in the news. But whenever it comes to an abortion provider doing it, the rules get a little bit tricky. Now, an excellent example is the story of the DC-5. Now, these children actually made headlines, which is an appallingly rare occurrence. In case you have not heard about this, here's what happened. Five aborted babies were discovered at the home of a pro-life activist in Capitol Hill. Her name was Lauren Handy. Now, Lauren received these children's remains from a whistleblower inside of a Planned Parenthood clinic. They were given to her, these children were, because she is the director of activism for a group called the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising, or PAAU. The idea was that she would reach out to local law enforcement and get causes of death for the children because it was clear that they had been born alive and then murdered. But, absolutely insanely, to this day, there has been no investigation and the only people facing penalties are those in the PAAU. Now, interestingly, according to CBN News, Handy and others that went along with her that, that are part of her organization are actually facing charges of a quote-unquote healthcare clinic invasion, unquote, rather than anyone looking into how the infants die. And so the people over there, the people in charge of Say, say these were like five-year-olds who were discovered, right? Then the people who are in charge of the homicide department over there, imagine them doing the same set of activities in regards to whether to, to these children if they were five or if they were ten. If, if five small child corpses who were like 
two or three or seven or whatever small child age you want to put on it. If five corpses were discovered and it was clear that they hadn't died of natural causes, it would logically make sense to do an investigation. But because these were corpses from a Planned Parenthood facility, instead of the people at fault for their deaths being charged with murder as they should be, instead the people who took them out of there and who are trying to give them a decent burial and trying to make those who would, who would research a homicide aware of what happened, instead of justice being served, the people who are trying to do right by these infants, they're the ones getting in trouble. That's what makes this so, so awful. Now, the laws attached to this particular case of the DC-5 are the Partial Birth Abortion Act as well as the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, which, of course, run diametrically opposed to one another. So the Partial Birth Abortion Act, which um, uh, the idea here with that one is that it would be legal to just leave a child to die or it would not penalize for extermination of the child born alive during a botched abortion. Now, abortion rights activists are currently seeking to get this act passed. On the other side of the aisle, the Born Alive Infants Protection Act is the inverse. It, quote, affirms legal protection to an infant born alive after a failed attempt at induced abortion, unquote. Basically, the idea is to not be able to murder a child if they're born alive, which shouldn't be a contentious issue, and yet here we are. Abortion rights activists on Capitol Hill are opposed to this act. They are opposed to the concept of protecting an infant from murder directly after his or her birth. Now, again, I wish that that was all there was to it. I wish that's where the story ended. But unfortunately, it's not. I have two more bills that I need to tell you about, and we know about both of them because of the Illinois Family Institute, although ironically, neither one of these bills is out of Illinois. So first, a new Maryland bill. It's called the Pregnant Persons Freedom Act or SB 669. Now, a core tenet describes the prevention of any investigation into a, quote, perinatal death related to a failure to act, unquote. Now, the wording here is important. The term perinatal has a broad definition. It can range anywhere from about 20 weeks into pregnancy to the end of an infant's first month post-birth. So, from 20 weeks of pregnancy to 30 days outside of the womb. This bill would allow a doctor, a nurse, or a parent who failed to act with reasonable and expected care leading to the death of a baby, it would allow all of that to not face criminal charges. It accounts for both neglect and murder. Essentially, it, it would, if it, were, if it were to pass, enshrine two things into law. First, the murder of a newborn infant for up to one month post-birth would not be chargeable. Plus, the stripping of all protections from preborn children up until the moment of birth. So just, just pause for a second and think about the magnitude of that kind of a bill. It would essentially give parents a test run to see if they like their new child. And then, if they decide that they do not like parenthood, or maybe they just don't like their child, then they can ensure the child's demise and face zero consequences. Literally, the mindset here is, if you don't like, or if you don't want your kid, feel free to kill it and try again. I, I legitimately don't even have the words for the level of evil entailed in that premise. So that is Bill 1. SB 669, Sierra Bravo 669. And then there's Bill 2. 
Now, this one comes from California, and it is called AB or Alpha Bravo 2223. It would decriminalize all deaths in the perinatal period. It would also prevent any coroner or police investigation into a death in the perinatal period, even if medical personnel were not present at the time of death. A parent could easily allow their child to die from neglect, and they would never face any investigation if this law passed. It has intentionally vague and ambiguous phrasing to protect legalized infanticide. Now, all of that is bad enough. What's equally horrifying is what's already on the books or lack thereof. Now, at current, in the USA, according to LifeNews.com, the only reason that abortion providers are currently getting away with infanticide immediately post-birth is because it's legal in 19 states. Just look the other way. Some of the states never passed laws prohibiting infanticide for babies who survive abortions, while at least one other, aka New York, looking at you, recently repealed its law requiring basic medical care for abortion survivors. That is peak insanity and brutality. Right now, pro-abortion Democrats are blocking bills in the U.S. House and Senate to protect newborns from infanticide. That is why acts like the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act are necessary. They would require that babies born alive after failed abortions receive the same basic medical treatment as any other baby born at that gestational age. The only difference between those two sets of infants, as in the ones that don't currently require medical treatment and the ones that do, is that one set is wanted and therefore worthy of being saved from death, quote-unquote, and the other set is unwanted and therefore unworthy of life and protection in the eyes of those fighting to kill these infants. Now, by the way, some of the fiercest advocates fighting for the bills that would save infants who are born alive during a botched abortion are none other than abortion survivors. They were infants whose lives were deemed unworthy of living, but they survived anyway because God built indomitability into the human spirit. You can find out all about their stories at abortionsurvivors.org. And I've actually had the extraordinary privilege of doing a lot of activism work with abortion survivors. And I am not kidding when I say that you can see the pain in their eyes. It is tragic. I actually once witnessed, this is a real thing that happened, I witnessed an abortion advocate flip off an abortion survivor who I was doing um, activism work with outside of an abortion clinic. So the advocate for abortion flipped off a person who survived an abortion. How callous does one's heart need to be to reach such a point? And before you ask, well, did she know or did the person who flipped off the abortion survivor know that that was an abortion survivor? And the answer is yes, because the survivor was holding up a sign. So this was not a, oh, this person just didn't know. This was a, they knew and they didn't care. Now, I'm aware that this all sounds like some sort of bygone era of insanity or maybe akin to an incredibly futuristic dystopian hell. I wish that that was the case, but it's not. You can close your eyes, you can stick your head in the sand, and you can pretend that the world has not gone mad. But the truth cannot be ignored forever. Either you are on the side of life for the most helpless and innocent among us, or you have some serious soul-searching to do.
With that, on to this week's book recommendation. It's called The Walls Are Talking. It's by Abby Johnson. What she did was she got a conglomerate of real-world stories of abortion workers who witnessed the unthinkable and walked away. It's going to make you sick to your stomach, but it is so vital to know about what is happening inside those walls. And of course, you can find this book in all the usual places. Again, it's called The Walls Are Talking, and it's by Abby Johnson. Finally, if you'd like to reach out to me personally for help or with questions or comments or concerns or whatever it may be, I'm on Facebook as Bex David, that's B-E-X, and X like X-ray, uh, last name David, D-A-V-I-D. And if you were on any other social media platform, you can find me as proudly pro-life Gen Z woman. It's spelled exactly the way it sounds, and it's put all together like one big mega word. I am here for you. Additionally, if you like this podcast, don't forget to share it with someone else who you think might benefit from it. And of course, subscribe slash download the episodes. It really does help. Now, next time, we're going to discuss the impact of the Hippocratic Oath on the pro-life movement and why it matters so much. Between now and then, I challenge you to live as though you are loved and cherished and precious simply because you are alive and our Savior did not create you by accident. Live as though your life has meaning and purpose, and I promise you that it will revolutionize your world in the best way possible. Until next time, let's continue to be pioneers in the space between the picket lines together. Thank you for tuning in, and God bless.